welcome to the sixth episode of the Uncharted 80s podcast. I'm here with my good buddy, Noel. Hey, welcome, Noel. Hi, welcome. For those that are listening for the first time, our podcast shines a light on those bands from the 80s that have perhaps been forgotten or haven't had the profile we believe they should have done. And today, Noel, we're featuring It's Immaterial. Have you heard of them? Yes, indeed. I think their fans call them Itsy. I think that's their their nickname but yes definitely knowledge. heard of them like and, and driving away from home obviously is, is the big the big song hey now just get in and close the door and put your foot down you know i like this suburb we're going through i've been around here many times before when I was young, we were going to move out this way For the cleaner, healthy, you know Away from the factories and the smoke I like that shop, too You can get anything there So just get in And we'll go for a ride Yeah, that's probably their best known song. Um, we'll do more on that a bit later, but they, that got to number 18 in the charts in, right. in 86. But the uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking to John Campbell from It's Immaterial. But I thought a bit of background first. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I know that It's Immaterial are a band that are you're very passionate about them and it feels like you've, you've been into them for a really long time. I just wonder where that came from. Yeah, I mean, it's... It probably goes right back to when we, uh, when I was first married in '87. Back back in those days, a bit like y- yourself, we were we yeah. were pretty poor in terms of income, and yes, we definitely. Didn't, really, didn't really in those days you didn't really go out much. Uh, so we used to stay in and play board games. And uh, one of the things that we used to do alongside that was listening to uh, our our sort of vinyl collection. And I had basically two records on repeat one was the lloyd cole and the commotions mainstream and the second one was the it's immaterial album lives hard and then you die ah, and, right. and their story is you know is, is particularly interesting um i don't know if you know how much you know about them uh, they came from a band called the Yachts, and right. the Yachts were sort of a band from Liverpool uh, in late 70s, 77-ish. And they actually had been previously known as uh, Albert Dock. Right, the Liverpool um, connection, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that They had supported the Sex Pistols at one of their really early performances back in 76. They played their first show uh, as the Yachts at Eric's nightclub in Liverpool. Wow, Um, yeah, famous place. More importantly, though, supporting Elvis Costello. And that actually, from what I can um, read, is that that actually got them the contract with Stiff Records. And they released a single called Suffice to Say. I'm just a young romantic fool I wrote this specially for you It's quite a snappy little tune I'm sure you'll like the chorus too It's sharp, sweet and to the point It even says that I love you Just after this Suffice to say you love me I can't say that I blame you Suffice to say I love you Now I know that one, and that's good. That's a good song. That's Which a good is song. is a great yeah. song. So who were who were in the who were in the yachts? What were the band members? Uh, so the the yachts were a guy called Bob Bellis who was on drums, John J J Campbell on vocals, Martin Dempsey on bass, guitar and vocals, uh, and Mick Mick Shiner, and then Henry Priestman on vocals and keyboards, and Martin Watson on guitar and vocals. Right, so there's a there's a few there's a, well, a few in the band there, so yeah, there is. And, um, yeah. There's a, there's there is a number there, uh, but more importantly, the bit where that for its immaterial is that they were formed 
off the back of the yachts. So John, J.J. Campbell, Martin Dempsey and Henry Priestman all joined or formed its immaterial. Oh, that's interesting. So it wasn't just uh, John who who went off and started a new band with another bunch of guys. They pretty much evolved it was, into yeah, three of material. Them. Yeah, they, yeah. I mean, they, they put a guy called Paul Barlow on drums. Uh, but interestingly enough, in no- 1984, the, the band sort of were reduced to a duo with a guy called Jarvis Whitehead. One of the things that the band had was they had a number of John Peel sessions. So they, oh, right. they, had, they actually had four sessions in total. Oh, that's amazing. You know, we've talked to a few people and getting one session has been a massive highlight in their life. To get four, that's incredible. I know. And they all talk really fondly of it, don't they? Those John Peel sessions. They do. Yeah. They, you know, I remember one of the guys you spoke to, I think it was screen three. For them, it was like play, going to play, feeling something really special, playing in the studio that so many of the great artists have played in before. So to get four sessions is pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, they felt they'd made it, didn't they? Yeah. That, and that first, that first session, had a, a track called a, a gigantic raft <laughs> In 2004, more recently, there's a, a, a big film came out, which you know, of course, called The Mancunian Candidate with Denzel Washington. And that song was on that that uh, soundtrack. Worldwide, the box office has grossed $96 million, which is pretty incredible. So a lot of people would have heard that song through that film. I, I think what's what's interesting about the band is how they developed. So if you listen to that first John Peel session and then you listen to the last session, which was in 85, yeah, the tracks that they had there, uh, Rope, um, hang on, Sleepy Town, Space and Festival Time. Those songs, I think, are quite different to those first ones. You know, the 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 changes in terms of their melody, their sound uh, was 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 very different. So, so like kind of like more more advanced or worse in terms of the, the it, sound. It the, felt whether it's just yeah. about production or something mm. else. I genuinely don't know. As you know, the the big the big thing for for the band was their hit um driving away from home uh this was sort of got to number 18 in the charts uh and they were they were signed to siren records which of course uh, oh yeah because uh the faith brothers were on siren uh along with then jericho and of course Tapal. So yeah. uh, we we obviously we've come across them in a, in a previous podcast before. Yeah, what will be um, what will be fascinating is when you went the, the story of that single because they got to a point where uh, they were pushing the record company were pushing the single uh, and from from what I can gather uh, was 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 working they had good marketing on it uh, and then they thought that the momentum of the song would be mm. enough to carry it right the way to the sort of top top ten. So they did. Uh, so they kind of shoved it let it run and I thought right it's going to keep going but then it, it, it and then, well then they sort of well what happened was there was a couple of things that happened one is that they then switched their attention to another band on their roster I don't know which one but I remember we um, when we talked to B-Movie 
the guy from some bizarre record, Stevo, he was managing them and he was managing Soft Cell. But of course, then Soft Cell had Tainted Love and that did so well that uh, they felt a lot of his attention went across there. So it yeah. might be a similar kind of thing, you know, with yeah, that's a, there's a pro- proper trend here, isn't there, in terms yeah. of the, yeah. um, the stories. The other thing that that record company that, that, that they did, so after they decided that they were going to move to somebody else, they actually ran out of stock. So what, they what ran, do you mean? Out, ran out. They didn't make enough vinyl. Didn't make enough records. Yeah. So <laughs> I can't believe that. So that's I mean, you know, <laughs> so that sort incredible. of stalled the um, that stalled the advance of that <laughs> well, it, record it up the charts. Of, it it yeah. kind of does stall it if you can't sell anything. You've got anything to sell, does it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I've not heard of that one before. That's uh, that's a classic. No, and then they tried with another song after that, a song called Ed's Funky Diner. Much more. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah, yeah, a bit more upbeat. Uh, yeah, definitely that one. And and interestingly enough, the the Christians sang backing vocals on that song. Oh, so, so they're another Liverpool band, the Christians, aren't they? Mm. So yeah, how interesting yeah. that is to hear. And, they, and actually, when we talked to uh, when we talked to John, we were interested to find out about what other Liverpool artists he you know he knew on the circuit at the time. Pete Wiley and you know yeah, Julian Cope and all those others that are around at the time. It'd be interesting to know what the scene was like. You know, so well, there was sorry, there was a proper, about the Christians. Yeah, yeah, no, there was a proper scene there, though, wasn't there? Now, what I was going to say about the Christians was that yeah. Henry Priestman, who was part of that original It's Immaterial lineup, um, he he was then part of the the Christians. So, oh right, yeah, so so, 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 he, so he, was, he was originally was he originally in um, the in the yachts? Yeah. It was originally right. in the yachts, moved to its material, and then moved to uh, the Christians. Yeah. Wow! So they they then um, once they they'd done that, they then made their their first album, "Lives Hard and and Then You Die." That was that was then followed up by a, uh, an album called "Song." Uh, didn't right. didn't perhaps do uh, from what I can make out. Didn't do the numbers or wasn't commercial enough. Uh, so so but... I wanted to ask you because obviously this is over a period of a, a few years here between eighty five and ninety, I think that we've been just talking about there. So I'm guessing they must have done a whole load of gear supporting other people and headline gigs and, and so on well there's there's the rub i i can't really find much evidence of many gigs at all so oh. i don't know whether they were just a, a stu- you know a studio band or whether they'd played a few i found that they'd played at one or a gig they played in the mid 80s 85 in uh, manchester where they were on the same lineup as the stone roses right i know they've just done one recently in liverpool literally right. a few months ago uh, but that's literally the um the the first one they've done for for years I mean, that's interesting i mean i was listening to the the paul weller desperately seeking paul podcast oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. one of the fans there who started a podcast during covid and actually the last one that he 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 did was actually met paul weller and weller was saying you know he'd go to the studio every day and write songs and he loved doing that but he equally loved getting out and playing live it kind of drove him you know to play to play to live audiences so it may be that they that actually that uh it's a material did do that we just haven't got much of a record of it or it might be that they just prefer to be more of a studio band you know yeah, it'd be interesting to find one out yeah yeah i mean the sounds from the first album into song into their third album the production changed a bit but but the 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 songs were still great the melodies were still great uh, the third album called house for sale has got a bit, bit of a bit of a tale about it so so they sort of started work on that in in from what i can make out 93 ish they then obviously did their demos nothing happened then so so that, so they didn't complete it in 93 no as they were moving a few years ago they found a box of the original demo tapes and then they decided to complete the project but they they went through in the mid 2010s 2016ish they used pledge music as a a way oh, of yeah, yeah. sort of raising funds to complete the the record i did I that so i i did that i pledged as part oh, wow. of the, uh, because of you know just because i love the band but mm. they've and what happened was pledge music went out of business uh, it's immaterial decided that they were going to complete the exercise and they weren't going to just let, let it stop them. So they they decided what they were going to do was they would complete it and then they would send that album to all the people that they, they kept all their details, send that album to everybody that was on the list. Wow, and that's amazing. didn't come out until uh, 2020. So uh, Wow, so incre- that started in 93. 93, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, fair play to hats off that they actually saw it through and fulfilled, you know, the, the 
what they felt was a commitment to the fan. I mean, it's Fantastic. a really impressive, really impressive thing thing to do. Um, it is. I have to say, you can still get it uh, on. Uh, it's now on Burning Shed, and and the guy that uh, interestingly that was involved in that last album, uh, the the Callum Malcolm, his name is. He had already produced their second album, so there's a nice bit of consistency oh, uh, right. between the between the two the two records. Okay, well, look, there's a, there's a bit of background about the band. Why don't we, um, why don't we, 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 we ask John some some of the questions that we've been talking about because uh, I think there's a, there's a really great story here. So, John, welcome to the uh, Uncharted Eighties podcast. What we wanted to do is sort of start off a little bit, if it's okay with you, going back yeah. to pre its immaterial, perhaps that transition from the band, the yachts into its immaterial. Could you just talk us uh, a bit about that? Yes, well, um, the Yachts came out of an art school band we had. We had a band called Albert Dock, which uh, I came to Liverpool in 1975 to go to the art school here, and I met a group of kind of like-minded young fellows. And um, at the time, there was a Liverpool art school band called Deaf School, who were actually still playing concerts occasionally. And... um, they were about to leave. They'd been signed to WEA and people were wondering who was going to play at the art school dance. So um, myself and a number of friends got together and we, we formed a group called Albert Dock and became kind of the new art school band here in Liverpool. In the very early days of Eric's, which was, was run by Roger Eagle and Ken Testy and Peter Fulwell, I remember them. We, we were there Albert Dock became a house band there, playing on Thursday nights. Wow. At one time at Eric's, Albert Dock supported the Sex Pistols. That must have been quite an interesting event. Yeah, I think it became about that because we we were always that uh, Thursday night house band for Eric's. So um, it was quite easy, easy for Roger, Eagle and Peter to put us in as the support with Sex Pistols when they arrived. But it, it was it was a fun night. It was uh, it's one of those nights when I remember kind of the attendance, and then when I see when I read the amount of people that were there that night, I can't remember that, you know. But yeah, it was fun. They, they played. Uh, it, there wasn't a kind of an established Eric's venue then, I suppose, because it was split between two venues. There was a, a club called Rotters on the ground floor of, I think it was Seal, and no, it was Victoria Street. And then on Matthew Street underneath, it was, I think it was called the Revolution, which eventually became the Eric's venue. So the, um, the Sex Pistols played upstairs in um, in the Rotters, which, which had, uh, I suppose, was quite well known for kind of people like, do you remember people like Faith Brown? And uh, the cabaret kind of acts. And yes. All that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was furnished like that, you know. And uh, the Sex Pistols came and played. Then I, rem- I remember I think Glenn Matlock broke a string, and there was a long period at one point where they just stopped playing. And and I don't even think John Lydon or Johnny Rotten uh, said a word to the audience. I, if, if I can remember, the audience was. At the most, about fifty people. There wasn't a lot there, and um, so. It, but it was an interesting, a, a very interesting night in that sense. And, and then the audience that was went down the fire escape stairs into the Revolution Club, and we played down there. But during the day, when we were sound checking down there, the Sex Pistols came down stairs to meet us and and they were saying they were slightly worried about meeting us because of the kind of the reputation of Liverpool at that time that they, they might get into a bit of trouble but um, it was fine they were nice chaps to me we had a nice time with them really they were oh, gentlemen cool. really yeah. <laughs> people like Glenn Matlock years later still waving to him in London and whatever you know that kind of thing when we meet up we chat you know pleasant Brilliant. But it, it was Brilliant. an interesting evening and and quite uh, a quite notable one, as you were saying, with all those um, you know people like Holly Johnson, all that all, all were away. It, it definitely the energy of that concert did start something in Liverpool. Yeah, let me see now. It was it was Roger Eagle, I think, who said, "Well, you should actually take this seriously because we were still all art students and just doing it for fun, really." And he said, "We well, should take it seriously. Uh, maybe slim down a bit because." We were a bit like uh, death school where anybody who wanted to play with us could get up and play. So 
the kind of lineup changed every time we played and that kind of thing. So um, we did. We sat down, a few of us at the core, which was like Henry Priestman and myself, Martin Watson, Martin Dempsey and Bob Bellis, I think, eventually became yachts. Um, we, I think myself and Henry lived in the same kind of accommodation. So we kind of thought of, let's... I think at the time, Albert, I was something like seven or eight. So, and it, some of some of them were just dancing, and some were playing odd instruments. So we thought, well, let's get the core of of um, a, a little group, you know, bass, drums, guitar, keyboards, and vocals. And we went down to five, called it yachts, by starting at the back of the dictionary and going up to the first <laughs> I like that. name that would be suitable. And we thought yachts was just like a, a sound. It just like it was just an odd sounding word. So we thought we call it yachts. And uh, we carried on with that kind of Thursday night uh, residency at Eric's club. We started playing a few concerts out of town and around. Got an, an agency, and uh, and I think it was we got seen by a couple of chaps from Stiff Records. All this all happened probably within about three months. Wow, and uh, we supported uh, Elvis Costello at Eric's, and um, a swing best management came backstage and wanted to sign us to them. And um, Stiff said they wanted us to go with them, and they released a single within about a month or something. So we became um, we became that kind of third year art school people who got other people to sign the attendance book for them and were never there. They were doing other things. You know, we were usually in transits going around the country, and yet we were still signed in. I remember, um, I think we all got kind of, uh, well, kind of the, the whistle was blown on us when we were um, we were con- uh, confronted by the head of school saying, well, uh, on uh, last Thursday, you, you were signed in here to be in college. Signed in, here's your name, 9.30, yours, 10 o'clock, Martin, and so forth, and... Uh, and uh, and yet, and they had a paper, and yet here's here's your group playing Thursday night in Glasgow. So you <laughs> weren't there, obviously. That's brilliant. So you know, <laughs> and that's how yachts arrived. And then I think it was I, I may have been a year or eighteen months in yachts, and I really wanted to finish the art school course. So um, I made arrangements to go back, and so at that point. Um, Yachts were doing well, I thought. And uh, Martin Watson, who was the guitarist, was a great kind of pop rock singer anyway. So I thought, well, I'll go back and finish my course for a year. So I left Yachts then, and I went back to the art school for a year. And it was during that kind of time at the art school that I met um, John Whitehead, who we called Jarvis Whitehead. (laughs) And I remember him (laughs) because I was there with a chap called... uh, John Mason, who was one of the ones that was kind of dropped originally from uh, Albert Dock. So I went around to see him at his flat, and he'd got this flat with a chap called Jarvis Whitehead. And we were chatting, and I just heard somebody playing chic bass lines in the, the other bedroom, and that turned out to be Jarvis, because at, at the time he was kind of a keen on being a bass player. So um, And that's how we met, and from there we, we kind of, formed some kind of beginnings of its material, along with uh, with Henry Priestman for some reason after well, in that year I went back to complete the art school course. And Yachts kind of turned around quickly and Henry decided to uh, to leave Yachts and um, and came and joined Jarvis and I who were really I remember the, the name was chosen for its material was just because it was a few friends in a flat. We weren't. We were back to that kind of art school thing, but it wasn't serious. We were playing for fun, and somebody and we said, "Let's release a single." And we went round to kind of a, I suppose, what would be called crowdfund, and went round to old friends and everything to chip, chip in, and we released a, a little single. And we, and we thought, "What should we call the group?" And there was a bit of discussion with, and I think it was me or one of the other one of that three pipe, uh, piped up and said, "Well." It's a material what we call them. And we thought, well, that's it then. We'll call it some material. That's great. And we wrote that down. And, uh, and that's that's kind of what the origins of it, you know. The genesis was there. But uh, it was just a bunch of friends, really. And it got a little serious, more serious as time went on. Because you moved to a, du- a duo, didn't you, of, uh, after maybe a couple of years of that? 
84-ish? Yeah, 84. There was, um, let me see. So there was that original kind of independent single release, uh, which was called called Young Man. to all the little record shops in York. There were several local distributors on the independent scene. We'd, we'd lug a few boxes of this record over there and drop them off with them. And, and it did okay. We managed to sell quite a few of them. But that was um, uh, that was recorded in a place called Benson Street Studios, which was um, the offices of Peter Fulwell, who was one of the managers of, um, of the Eric's Club. He decided to become a manager as as well. That, that was another string to his bow. He had a, a group called Wahid, and they had um, um, Pete Wiley. Pete Wiley, that's right. Yeah, and uh, we had um, Pete had an eight track studio, I think it was, down in his offices. So we recorded that young man single there because Pete was always kind of a. When I uh, left yachts, Pete came round to the house. And was really encouraging. He said, "Whatever I do, you know, he didn't want me to drop any involve, involvement with the with the music scene here in Liverpool." So, uh, so he kind of supported and funded things I was interested in. So um, we Brilliant. did that single there, and uh, and then we worked with Pete on I think. And, let me see when that was. Now we had, uh, oh, we became part of um, a kind of a, a label, this uh, piece set up called Eternal Records, which had kind of um, the flagship band, I think, of um, of Wahid. And then and the other two kind of fledgling groups at the time underneath was us stumbling around as its material. And Colin Vernecourt was black at the time. Oh, right, brilliant. It just kicked off here in Liverpool. So Pete was managing those three groups. So it was. Um, so he managed to, to cobble something with uh, together with WBA as kind of a label deal. So there was, it became and those three groups were signed to WBA and um, uh, under the Eternal uh, label. So I think that's where it went next. And we we had a single out with um, on WBA called White Man's Hut. <laughs>
which was fun to do. I enjoyed doing that, but uh, I didn't really enjoy the relationship with WBA and 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 some of the characters down there. It didn't seem to suit us. I mean, it was maybe too early for us. Uh, we weren't stable enough yet to be in kind of a with a large record company behind us. So we didn't feel right there. So uh, it's funny because a lot of the we've interviewed a few different um, people from a few bands, and uh, they're saying exactly the same. You know, um, they, they 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 sign a band and then they try to change them from what what they liked in the first place. And it sounds like you experienced a similar sign of that sort of thing. Well, I think so. I think they had um, they they had a procedure and a way of working and a way of marketing. And I think people like myself and and, and all those other uh, young musicians who'd come up through that kind of independent scene had their own way of working, and and it kind of worked by fluke in a lot. It was just what you did, and to then be kind of put, well, putting this kind of on this uh, treadmill and 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 have to go through this procedure A to B to C to D and do it that way, and you know you'll have a hit record. And many times, I, I remember when White Man's Hut was released. There was, there was so many released from WBA that week that it was a bit of you got a sense that it was a bit of let's just throw it at the wall. All this stuff, some of it'll stick, and we'll go with those, you know. And so um, I didn't really feel that there was a, a long term future there. You did have a few, you did a few peel um, sessions at that time, didn't you? We did a lot. We did. Um, Probably about half half a dozen, something like that. And Peel was a real strong advocate mm. of the group in its early days. He was a good man, John Peel. And uh, yes, he he played. We we did an, another. I think before we got to, um, I think that's probably one of the reasons WBA uh, picked us up as part of this uh, eternal package. We did a single with Peter Fulwell on his in. What's it inevitable? Well, we had that first um, single we put out, Young Man, was on our own label, which was called The Hit Machine, because we were sure it was going to be a hit. Nice. And um, we kind of merged with Pete Fulwell's independent label, which was called Inevitable. And we put a record out on the Inevitable Hit Machine, which sounded even better. So um, we put the record out there called A Gigantic Raft. I think the long title was a, a gigantic raft in the Philippines. And that was just a, a kind of rhythm guitar thing. And uh, we did it in one day in Amazon Studios here in Liverpool. And uh, I think it was, it was based, based on some chord changes in the rhythm that Jarvis had. And then we just looked through this big secondhand book that was hanging around the flat. I think it was called The Illustrated History of the World. And um, it just had lots of different pictures. And one picture was of this raft and underneath it just said a gigantic raft in the Philippines. So we called it that. And then we tried to make up some kind of imagery that would go over this rhythm around that title. But Peel played it to death as soon as it came out all the time. And uh, it did really well independently. Sold a lot of copies independently. So Warner Brothers were quite happy to pick us up in this package. And they tried to release gigantic raft again as the first single when we but of course they didn't want the independent release we'd done they wanted to put us in the studio and throw lots of money at it and do a whole new recording I suppose looking back I suppose so that they own the recording if it is a hit but, uh, but it was just overdone you know I mean if you can over egg a pudding there must have been at least 40 odd eggs in that one or something because it came out a terrible but that was kind of the first interaction with Warner Brothers, so we were a bit worried. We went on to do White Man's Hot. But after that, we heard there was some kind of umming and ahhing in their A&R department uh, about where to go with us next. And uh, so we jumped and had a conversation with them and said, well, we're not very happy either. And anyway, after some negotiations, we just decided to go each other's way, you know, leave it there. It didn't quite work out for us. I think... I think Black as well split away. I'm not sure the, whether Pete, it may have been the whole group. I think it may have not been working for for that kind of independent, eternal label with Warner Brothers. Because I think Pete Wiley went his own way as well now, thinking about. But that was a, it was a very creative place to be in Benson Street, Liverpool, where the eternal management 
offices were with Pete Fulwell and, and, and the 8-track studio and anything. You'd go in any time and just throw down some demos. I and mean, Pete was always extremely supportive, encouraging. So. I was going to say, so you're talking about the studio, and um, you must have come across quite a few of the other Liverpool artists and bands, you know, I don't know, Ian Brody, obviously Pete Wiley you've mentioned, Julian Cope, I don't know. I guess there's quite a, quite a big group of you know musicians around at the time doing the same sort of thing. There was, yeah. I mean, as everybody knows, a lot of that, a lot of that group of people uh, went through Eric's. So um, you know, Holly Johnson and well, Holly Johnson and I met in um, Pete Fulwell's kitchen because oh. it was almost a ho- an open house at Pete Fulwell's and anybody who was kind of slightly involved in his uh, independent label or management used to just meet there in the kitchen in the morning. I don't know how Chris's wife put up with it, you know, but she did. And um, so I met Holly there and Ian Brody. They were all in, in the kitchen at Pete's. So the main kind of groups that I, I knew were really from that that uh, eternal label. But I knew everybody else in town socially. You know. Is your, your song and, from those early days, I, you know, Young Man, Gigantic Raft and so on, they seemed to evolve really quickly as you went towards yeah. that first album. What, what, what do you put that down to? Towards the first album. Yeah, well, the, the evolution of the songs, uh, you know, they, they seem to change from those early releases through to the when you got into the situation where you had got Life's Hard, Then You Die. I kind of know what you mean. Uh, I think in those early songs, uh, there was a, there was still kind of, um, I don't know, it, it was very kind of collage. We would just, we would just throw things together, and um, and there was a, a slightly, I suppose, if anything, we had from that independent kind of punk thing was was that um, was that collage thing. We used to, we were interested in in, in many different aspects of music, and um, and I suppose that. Another thing is we kind of stopped shouting a bit as we went on. Things were kind of more about noise and that in those days. We were younger coming out of the punk. And we were always extremely eclectic, I think, and liked lots of different types of music and different kind of imagery. And I think that eclecticism showed more in the songwriting as we got to uh, Life's Hard and Then You Die. And I suppose the structure of the songs, we, I suppose what we're putting is we paid more attention to the structure of the songs at that stage and what we what we wanted as a whole you know so uh, so I, I do th- I suppose the songwriting developed it became a, a little more uh, influenced as well by the notion of um, kind of short stories or, or short little films very v- visual ideas in the lyrics and, uh, and in a soundscape just like a short story really was the, I suppose the idea started to do um, a lot more kind of narrative talk vocals and to express this kind of story so just let the rhythm work and tell a story and and eventually get to some kind of hook but uh it, it was that notion i suppose slightly cinematic as well that that idea you know? i mean that came through in the in obviously the uh, driving away from home you've that that sort yeah. of style of that rhythm and you know the the, the way that you sang yeah, that yeah yeah i was always fascinating be, that, that notion between a conversation turning into a song is, is, is a kind of nice thought, you know, because people have rhythms of speech and cadences and it only takes it to turn at one more notch and it's a song, you know, it's like... Well, the 12-inch mix of that song is particularly goes through those those stages of, of, of yeah. spoken into singing, so uh, it's a re- really good example of that. Yeah, yeah.
it's all the same to me I mean after all it's just a road hey look there go the Dukes of Egypt yeah the gigging's interesting because from what I can see, you didn't seem to be that prolific as a as a gigging no. band. Well, I don't think we ever had a lineup as such, you know, because as I said, you know, Henry kind of joined when Yachts came to an end. And then I think it was just coming up to recording the first album that Henry, um, we did some work. Uh, I think the early recordings of the first album was um, Ed's Funky Diner. working with the engineer in that session we thought he was good and understood what we were trying to do and uh, his name was David Bascom I think he went on to do all the work for Tears for Fears and he's, he's well known in the industry but um, so I think we were actually David's first production credit because he did the Louse Hard and Then You Die album but as, as a way to get him the other time but the, the record company was kind of what's it Siren Records Siren yeah but it was it was, it, it was a virgin satellite so they they were umming and ah about Archer, they wanted to choose the producer, and we wanted Dave Bascom. So we came to this agreement that David work on one song with us in um, in Stockport, most Strawberry Studios, I think he was. And he came up and did that track with us. But uh, we'd also met, and Peter Fulwell was starting to do some work with the Christian Brothers at the time. He, I think he'd seen them on Opportunity Knocks, if we remember, and they were around in Liverpool. And he thought they could. They could do something. He'd got into contact with them. And so they came along to Stockport with us and did some backing vocals for us on um, on Ed's Funky Diner and started to... And Henry, coming out of Yachts, didn't really feel there was place for him in the way we were writing songs like that uh, because it was Javs and I basically put that first album together. So Henry was feeling slightly himself like a bit of a satellite of us too. So he got together with the Christian brothers and they started demoing the Christian first album. So Henry wasn't around all the time then because so again, so then we didn't have a keyboard player again. And I think the drummer went and joined the Christians that we had at the time. So we were always in flux with kind of musicians in a membership where he never really had a settled lineup. So to commit to any kind of touring was difficult anyway. And for John and I, the joy of it all was kind of... Uh, although we did like the odd live show, we didn't want to be slogging around because we, we enjoyed being in studios and making things, you know. Because you've just done the... You've just done... You've just played Liverpool, haven't you? Quite we recently. Did. How was that? Yeah, we played um, 16th of December. It was It was fun. It was really fun to do it again. We uh, we were asked, going, this is going back to Death School, the group Death School again. They, as I was said when I mentioned them, they still play occasionally. And it was the 50th anniversary, apparently, of Death School playing their first uh, art school dance. So they were, they were having this 50th anniversary concert. And then somebody said, well, let's make it an art school kind of night for everybody. And uh, the manager of Death School, Ken Testy, who 
known since the Eric days, rang me up and said, can you do it? Can you do this now? And there was only Jarvis and I. So we said, fine. And we were thinking maybe we'll go and do it like we used to do with just a tape machine or nowadays, I suppose, a computer and the two of us. But, uh, and then I had this idea that maybe I should contact Lippa here in Liverpool and see um, whether I can make it part of a module for some of their students to have some kind of experience of working live in that way. So, And they were very enthusiastic, and I think they'd done it with other bands uh, abroad before now as well, So, but they'd never done it with anybody in Liverpool. So I, um, so we put together a group of, I think it was second-year students from Lipper and rehearsed a number of times with them in Lipper. And um, so we did it with the support of Lipper, and it was great. It was fun. Henry came and joined, so it was myself, uh, Jarvis, and five young musicians from Lippa behind us. So we had an eight-piece band, probably the biggest we've ever had. And it was fun. It was really fun to do. You know? So uh, I've been speaking to them. I saw her. I went to uh, thank the staff at Lippa the other day, and they're very keen to do anything else we feel we could collaborate on. So we might be doing more things this year. I was going to say, is it giving you a thirst for more? A certain amount of a thirst. The fun and the enthusiasm and meeting an audience is is really tremendous there's a lot of really kind of downtime and uncomfortable time and hard work that goes into it it's quite a hard job really i think which song went down best with the audience this time i don't know the whole thing seems to go down okay but we played the obvious things driving away from home and um had swanky diner and we played some um, off the new album as well. I played Summer Rain off the last album, I should say. The city streets are shining bright From where I stand beneath the trees As you walk by, I hear you sing Yes, I recall those little things Like your voice standards if we can call them that, i think still go down very well but summer rain went down very well as well from the last album so uh, that was nice to hear and the students who played with us really enjoyed it so uh, that was good as well it was nice to do that collaboration and i think that's what enthused jarvis and i to do it as well it was, it was something different to try you know and it's good. Well, they see they, those songs certainly seem to have stood the test of time. Do you still love playing, like driving away from home? Is that something that still resonates with you? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed these lo- lots of songs and lots of. Um, it's made me kind of review your back catalogue, even though it's not that extensive. But there, there are some uh, some good songs in there. I, I remember, and it made us like look around because I think I haven't got any here. But uh, when we, Janice and I always had, even when we weren't re- releasing albums, uh, we did things like um, incidental music for radio plays and bits for theatres. So always doing bits and pieces like that. So we always had a sixteen-track, one-inch studio, and we'd always meet up there over the years. Every Thursday, we had locked off as a music day. And a social day as well, we'd just get together and make something. And we wouldn't really think for many years about doing it because um, John uh, Javis went on to uh, form a little music school here in Liverpool. And I uh, think after the song album, I uh, went back to art school. But this time as one of the staff I used to teach in the fine art department for about 10 years now. While still doing odd bits of music, but uh, so we had this uh, sixteen-track studio that we met every Thursday, and and I, I have uh, in the house somewhere here boxes and boxes of um, 
a one-inch 16-track tape. I haven't got the machine anymore. It wore out with us using it every Thursday over the year. <laughs> but um, I've got all these tapes, and they, they, there are kind of songs locked in there. So I was talking at Lip when I went back down. Do they know anybody who's got a one-inch 16-track I could use? Because we're thinking of maybe trying to get those out because there's, there are many more bits of material songs than are out there. Many, many more, you know, that have just been on shelves for years and years. You think if anyone's, you know, anyone's got one, the uh, Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts or Lipper, as you say, oh, that's right. would be the place. But they did a funny thing. I remember years ago when uh, when it opened, and, and this is during the time I was um, teaching at the art school, Professor Fallows, who works at the art school and myself, got involved in uh, the uh, transporting of... Um, a uh, flatbed Telefunken quarter-inch mastering machines from the old Abbey Road studio, part of this connection with Paul McCann, up to Lippa for use by the students of Lippa, I think, to wow. practice editing on and that kind of thing. It was something about eight months or so, maybe, after they'd arrived here. We heard um, they'd got some new equipment and just thrown all these out into the bin. So, uh oh. uh, Colin and I used to race around there and salvage one of them for the art school because it was, it was in Abbey Road. It was used by the Beatles, you know. Wow, it I was can't believe that. They just threw them out as old oh. equipment. What do you say about song? Because that, that's obviously, that album didn't appear to get as much exposure as perhaps it should have no. done, in, well, in my view, mm. but because there's some, there's some I, great tunes on it. Yeah, yeah. it's my favourite. Um, of those, the first two albums, anyway, because um, it's it's that progression that you were talking. About. We did those kind of one-off singles with WEA and the independent things, and and they were they were more kind of collaging words together. So they they weren't they weren't a story. It was just all collage process, and and then we we kind of advanced into. Um, that more eclectic storytelling style of uh, the first album, and then by the time the second album came, it was a uh, it was something that we'd settled into. That's then we wanted to tell stories, and we so we approached the writing for that. We we didn't we to the chagrin of the record label, we didn't approach the album thinking we want a hit single, we want this, we wanted We wanted to release an album of stories, really, just set to musical settings. So um, that's the way we approached it from day one. And uh, so in that sense, that one is the most successful one for me because what came out at the end was what I wanted to come out at the end. You know? But unfortunately, because it didn't have an out-and-out out hit single choice on it, at the time, I think Virgin were thinking more about uh, starting up their airlines or expanding their airlines. So Richard Branson wanted to start shutting down these kind of satellite labels, not um, putting the money into the airlines. It was kind of one of the very last releases on Siren just before it disappeared. So it, it just petered out. You know. They tried, didn't they? That... With Heaven Knows, they tried to. That was the single, I think, wasn't it? Heaven Knows. tried to make well they made us put a different chorus on it and then they'd, they'd have a go with it but it was you know it's, i don't know it was never really 
a single, you know. I'd have preferred them just to release one of the songs on it, you know, go back to an independent ethic or something, just put a single song out, not look for a, a massive hit, but try and intrigue people, you know, that kind of thing. But no, but they did the same, um, it made, it just made a light bulb go in my head, a memory that of, um, with the first album, when Driving Away From Home was out, Siren, uh, it started to catch on Radio 1, Radio 2, very quickly and was was getting you know 30 plays a week or something like this at one stage but siren had never really thought that there was an it was an out and out hit single so they didn't press up enough when it got to 18 in the charts they didn't have any pressings left they had to go and repress so for a couple of weeks it just disappeared while they didn't have anything in the shops to sell absolute badness isn't it (laughs) yeah Absolutely. And our A&R man, Ross Stapleton, I think, I think one of the other groups he was the A&R man for was um, who he likes to think he discovered. And I know he's still, he's in contact with them. He's a uh, Simple Minds. He worked with them from day one as well and a few other bands. So he, he really did have a bit of nous for it. And he was a really, he was a nice man. I was one of the pledges who uh, pledged to pledge music. Yeah, I know that's a ba- you know had a had a bad ending with their bankruptcy, but also you you took a, a really what I would describe as a courageous decision. When that happened, you obviously wanted to finish the album House for Sale, um, but also you wanted to give back to everybody that had pledged to you. You sent the record. I've got it here that you sent uh, everybody uh, without sort of charging them another another fee. Talk, talk us through that process because to to me that you I was already a, a lifelong fan anyway, but that was something that perhaps didn't get much publicity, much profile as part of that release. No, it was, I mean I was as you can imagine terribly shocked when I heard that news. What I didn't like about the pledge situation was, uh, I suppose it is people are in, in jobs in positions, so they feel they have to keep on doing their job until the last minute or whatever. But it must have been going under for quite a while, and I was still getting masses of encouragement from pledge staff, pledge music staff, to carry on. And I I realised that I was I was trying to fulfil my next commitment in delivering the album, and there was a staged plan where they would release money to you, and they weren't releasing these monies. So I was trying to do the work, complete the album. I, I was doing it with no money from them anyway. So when they have finally um, collapsed, there was a there was a lot of commitment from people out there. We didn't want to kind of break any kind of faith or any ties with them. We thought, well, if we can put it out and sell enough so that we can give those people the record they pledged for and break even through the other sales, that'll be a win for us just doing that to get out of there, you know. So uh, so we decided to plough ahead and do that, and we, we did it through... Uh, friends supporting us we set up a, a a just giving page with people and we, we went all different ways to find funding to do it. and we reimbursed where we could of that you know it, it was it was a, a terrible place to find yourself in because there was also a kind of the idea of pledge being a shop as well with everybody there so you could have it was another place to go from but luckily enough i uh i got in contact with a, a chap at burning shed who was who used to like the group. So so he said he'd look after that kind of distribution end for us if we could just get it pressed. So we carried on, got it pressed. And luckily enough, it, did, it covered all the debts we had and everybody got their album. So we're happy in this end. And do you look back now, what's your, you know, what's your standout tracks from that? They're interesting tracks on that album because they, they really did evolve. Well, for me, one of the tracks... And I was talking about the notion of short stories. For me, uh, I've always really liked Just North of Here. Well, it's a funny kind of question to come straight out and ask, but that's exactly what he did. Where's heaven? Just like that. Where's heaven? Well, I was minding my own business over Heaven, well, what could I say? I don't. 
kind of structure of it, how it does start on, in a location and it's a conversation that, as we said before, turns into a song as it goes and it actually does. The first choruses are spoken and then they're half spoken, half sung. Then at the end of the song, you just get a full chorus. You know, so it really builds that way. So that and um, and the last song we did for it, which was um, Summer Rain, that came right at the end. And uh, and that was um, a few chords. We started the whole thing. It was one of those things. That it, was, it was the brackets that kind of opened it and ended it. You know, we started with Summer Rain. And I think it was a demo called Amanda for some reason when we started. It's funny, there's a few of the demos uh, sort of um, trickled out, didn't they, over uh, over, over the years. Uh, there was one called Several Brothers. Oh, yeah. That, that's one that I was surprised didn't make it onto the album. Yeah, yeah. kind of demos I think we did in the Benson Street studios for um a life's hard at that right. point. So an early. Well that's um maybe that's the fourth album, do you think? Well there's stuff lying around, you know, we keep yeah. saying we've got we, I don't think there was this I pressed um a CD once and did um did a sleeve for it and um and I, I printed about 10 of them off and gave them to friends and people I know in the industry um, with a suggested other kind of it's a material album and I'd called it record I've had people in America and Canada coming back to me saying they bought record the album and some people got hold of this uh, CD and are producing it you know so. wow that's incredible well, if you had a favourite memory from your time in it's a material what, what would you say that would be lots of um, favourite memories things like musical things like we did Rope on the first album I think Steve Wickham was in the other room I think they were doing Hole of the Moon in the other room and he came in and just played some fiddle for us but love like Steve Wickham love, love all that Waterboy stuff fantastic yeah yeah, yeah. they were great they were really nice people Brilliant. as well he nipped in just played and that's one of the good things about album because it had so many other musicians on because I said before the, the nuclei of the band was Jarvis and I so quite often there'd be days in, in that studio on the first album where it'd just be me Jarvis and Dave Bascom there then if the water boys were in we think we'd, we'd quickly get up a track we thought a violin and ask them they'd nip in and so we, we kept just uh, it was in North London somewhere that studio I can't remember what it's called now but yeah so I enjoyed moments like that and when we were doing um on that time when we were doing driving away from home we did some of the recording for it in milwaukee in the, on the 16th of december it was my birthday so we went out to this local concert hall and uh there was a, a big round of applause for jay leadner who was a local musician who was had come home for christmas from nashville and so this jerry got on this stage with a big belt of harmonicas you know blues harps or and started joining with the local band and playing a few tracks and so at the end of that night out we just went up to him and said um would we've got this track called driving away from home jim leadner was he? he said uh, he said could could you come and just play harmonica on it just for an hour or two so he said i can't i'm, I'm flying back tomorrow i just came home see the family and flying back to nashville tomorrow so we were oh and then he said well i'll tell you what I'll do. on the way to the airport i'll just drop in for half an hour or something you know so he did he was as good as he were his word and he dropped in and in about half an hour he played all that harmonica and driving away from home and then just to see it. We only met him for about an hour in, in our entirety. You know, so we just call it Jim's tune, you know, because he, he made such a difference really quickly, just dropped in.
but that was a good memory just meeting him and 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 kind of lots of moments on song great little moments happened there because we we uh, we decamped to north berwick in uh, scotland and worked with callum malcolm who was a really lovely man to work with we were there for about six months or something so there were the crazy moments like um we'd be sat in in the uh, studio and just thinking what we should do with one of those song tracks and callum malcolm had a good sense of humor and was very playful and he'd say um shall we should we go to the jim clark museum in duns i said what do you mean so we jim clark the old scottish race driver he lived on a farm in duns and there's a museum there with a couple of his cars in it drive off to Duns and have a look at the cars and then on the way back you know uh, Callum had um, had like tape a lot of batteries together onto a, a mic and, and he'd take us to a cave down that he knew he, from being a boy and he'd, he'd, we'd, we'd have snares with us and just make some samples and take those back to the studio so all that kind of thing was going on Thank you for sharing those stories they are superb I know people yeah. are going to love the episode and really appreciate it Good to meet you <laughs> Alright chaps Great. Good to meet you. Have a good year, both of you. Thank, thank right. you. Cheers, Thank you. Thank you. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Uncharted 80s podcast. As you know, uh, we do our research from a variety of sources. Of course, if uh, you want to add any more details to what we've we talked about uh, or correct us on anything, then you can, of course, contact us. Where can they contact us, Noel? Well, they can contact us on our email address, which is podcast at uncharted80s.com. Brilliant. Or you can do that via our Facebook group, The Uncharted 80s. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thank you.